0: Well, it's our privilege to be back in the book of Hebrews this morning. Take your Bible, please, and open again to Hebrews chapter 2 as we continue to look at Christ, who is the better Adam. The heart of sinful man is very often driven by ambition for personal glory. We've of course seen outlandish examples of that and men like Muhammad Ali who spent his entire career declaring his greatness and demanding that everyone else declare his glory and greatness. We've seen on the stage of human history kings who have conquered peoples and nations for their own glory and fame. And astonishingly, even among our Lord's disciples, we have a scene in which Christ had to rebuke them for arguing over who was the greatest. But while there are many famous examples like these, behind the scenes, there are many more personal, private examples that exist in our own hearts. As sinners, we are born instinctively thinking that the world revolves around us. We see it clearly in our children and in our grandchildren, but if we're honest, we also see it lurking in the darkness of our own hearts. Even as believers, we must constantly battle our fleshly temptation towards personal ambition and the pursuit of our own reputation. And this cancerous temptation towards personal pride and the pursuit of personal glory has contributed to some very dangerous and unbiblical understandings of the gospel. Far too often, modern evangelical churches cater to man's natural bent towards self-centered thinking and the results are devastating. It happens like this. When we hear that God loves us, and died to save us, we are immediately faced with the temptation to think that those truths reveal something honorable about us rather than the glory of God. It's true. The gospel does reveal many truths about mankind, but far from revealing that man is noble and honorable, it reveals that man is wicked, rebellious, indeed worthy of the wrath of God because of sin. But man, in his pride and self-centered way of thinking, can quickly flip that around and say that if God loves me and died for me, I must be pretty great, right? There must be something about me that God just had to have. And in so doing, we miss the true wonder and glory of the gospel, which points not to the glory of man, but to the incredible, unfathomable glory of God. You see, when we understand the gospel as it's biblically explained, we come to see that we as believers are caught up in this wonderful, mysterious, eternal plan of redemption that existed before the world began. And yes, we are the recipients of great, unfathomable benefits for those of us who are in Christ. But all of this is motivated not by some charming, intrinsic quality within us, but with within the perfections of the Godhead. And this is the wonderful truth that the author of Hebrews is going to expound for us this morning as we continue our study of the book of Hebrews, chapter 2 and verse 10. Remember, the theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And we've been looking over the last several weeks at this main idea that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angel's. If you haven't been with us, we've seen nine different proofs that Jesus is greater to than the angels. I'll just put those there on the screen. We won't go back through those this morning. But that ninth proof, Jesus is the better Adam, has led us into a lengthy discussion of the person of Christ. And we've seen three features of the way that Christ is our representative. We've seen his humiliation in taking on flesh and becoming a human being to live in our place. We've seen his exaltation of being seated at the right hand of God, and we've seen, thirdly, his substitution, that he died. He tasted death for all men, the text says. Last week, we introduced this declaration in verse 10 that Christ's suffering was fitting. Let's read together Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verses 9 and 10. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. We began last week by looking at this massive declaration that the suffering of Christ was fitting. And in context, we're talking about this, this substitution that Jesus tasted death for those who would repent and believe in him. The author of Hebrews is, is worried that some might recoil at this idea of God sacrificing his own son on the cross to pay for the sin sins of others. That They struggle to reconcile the perfect character of God with this act of the crucifixion of his son. The author's point in verse 10 is that the crucifixion of Christ, the substitution of Christ on the cross, is absolutely, completely fitting or in keeping with the character of God the Father. And we looked last time at two descriptive statements about God, two massive truths. Statement number one was that all things exist for God's glory and statement number two is that all things exist by God's providence. The author puts it this way, for whom are all things and through whom are all things. Now those two statements, as we said, provided the foundation for the key truth that we'll be looking at this morning in verse 10. But before speaking specifically about the substitutionary death of Christ, he first has to explain this idea that absolutely everything exists for God's glory and absolutely everything exists by his providence. That's because here's the connection point in this argument that the, the death of Christ is fitting with the character of God. What he's saying is that if everything that has ever existed, is fitting with the character of God because it's for his glory and by his providence, then certainly the substitutionary death of Christ is fitting with the character of God. Now that's the flow of thought we have to keep in mind as we come to this second half of verse 10. But interestingly, yet again, before getting to the the key point of the text, he gives us another modifying statement. Another modifying statement that helps round out the fullness of what he's saying here. Before talking directly about the substitution of Christ, he wants us to understand God's objective in the substitution of Christ. What was it that Jesus was doing or accomplishing on the cross? The objective is this, the salvation of God's people. The salvation of God's people. Look back at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, that's God the Father, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory. In bringing many sons to glory. That's the phrase we're going to feast on for a few moments together. Understand that what Jesus was doing in his suffering on the cross was purchasing and securing a redeemed people given to him by God the Father in eternity past. Before the foundation of the world, God the Father ordained that he would save a people for and by his Son to his own glory. Really, that is the theme of the entirety of the Bible that God is ordaining a people by his son for his son to his own glory. That salvation of God's people came through necessarily the suffering of his own son. And so what Jesus was doing, the object of his suffering on the cross, was to secure the redemption of God's people and to guarantee their entrance into glory. Notice specifically what these people are called in this phrase in bringing many sons to glory now that's inclusive of men and women sons and daughters is the idea but in bringing many sons to glory these who have come to know Christ are now called sons but this is a sonship that is not inherently theirs It is because they are identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. They are identified or in union with the only begotten Son, and therefore they are now sons and daughters. I think you understand that when a Christian comes to Christ, they are baptized into Christ, the Scriptures say, by the Holy Spirit, and therefore they are eternally identified with the only begotten Son of God and are therefore considered by God the Father Adopted sons and daughters. Paul explains it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, these wonderful, glorious verses. He says, He, God the Father, that is, predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Understand, Christian, that our adoption was predestined before the world began and it was always predestined to be through the Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten. The way in which Jesus fulfilled the mission given to him by the Father of redeeming a people for himself was through the suffering of the cross. And so on that terrible yet beautiful cross... Jesus was securing our safe passage to eternal reconciliation and eternal life and fellowship with the Father. And notice that this group of adopted sons is no small gathering. What does it say? Bring many sons to glory. Bringing many sons to glory. It is true that not all men will be saved. Unfortunately, many have died and will die in hard-hearted rebellion against God, and they will therefore suffer the just wrath of God for all eternity. That is a fact. But brothers, may we never let that fact cause us to think that those who will be saved will be few in number. Before the foundation of the world, God set apart many sons and daughters and he will see them safely home that fact should change the way that we share the gospel by the way all too often we find ourselves nervous and afraid to share the gospel with others and frankly if we're honest we often approach evangelism pessimistically doubting that others will really respond in faith and repentance as we share the gospel But that kind of approach to evangelism evangelism simply will not do. It doesn't do justice either to the character of God or the teaching of Scripture. Yes, the way of destruction is broad, and many will follow that path. But God has also said that he has set apart many sons and daughters as his own from before the world began. And so we should share the gospel with the utmost confidence And with hope, yes, many will turn away, but many will also respond. Remember, Jesus said that the fields are ripe for harvest. It's the workers that are few. May this call us to open our mouths, share the gospel, spurred on by trust and hope that God is still redeeming his sons and bringing them to glory. Also, this reminds us that if you're in Christ this morning, you need to understand that in your unity with Christ, when God looks at you, he sees a son or a daughter. Think about that. He will treat us now and forevermore, not simply as slaves, not even simply as friends, but as sons, as adopted children. Just let that sink in. You see, so many Christians struggle to think that God could ever really love them because they are so painfully aware of their sin. They say, how could God really ever love me if I'm this sinful? And it's as if in their minds their sin casts a shadow over the love and grace of God. But biblically, if we think about it, the fact that God set his love on us with full knowledge of our sin and depravity does not cast a shadow on his love, but rather a spotlight. Because this is a real, genuine love. It has resulted in an eternal adoption. Listen, we're right to understand that we have no business as sinners being in the presence of God, but... The amazing news is that God provides the righteousness required for us to live eternally in perfect fellowship with him. He provides it, first of all, through imputation. That is, by imputing the righteousness of Christ to us so that he sees us in and through the righteousness of Christ. But it goes beyond that. Because God's eternal plan for us is not that we remain sinners in actuality so that for eternity God is kind of doing this. You know, we're over here and he, he puts Christ's righteousness just hoping not to catch a glimpse of what we really are. That's not God's plan. God's plan is that the imputed righteousness of Christ would have its full effect so that one day we are righteous in actuality. That that's really who we are, sharing the perfect righteousness of Christ. You say, how do we know that? Because where does it say in this text that these sons and daughters are brought to? What does it say? Bringing many sons to glory, to glory. Now, we might be tempted to think that that's simply a a descriptive way of saying that he's going to bring us to heaven, and that is true. We, We speak of heaven as glory, the place of glory, but here's the amazing truth that this text is hinting at for us this morning, it is that Christ not only wants us to see his glory, but in a certain way, share his glory. Now let that hit you for a moment. You say, where do you get that from? John 17. This is Jesus praying to the Father right in front of his, his apostles. They're listening to him pray this to God. Listen to what he says, John 17, verse 22. He says, The glory which you, God the Father, have given to me, listen to this, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, even as you have loved me heaven and the new earth will be a place that's filled to the brim with the glory of God. And what that means is that we will see and experience in the, the new heaven a place that's, that's not on, that not only finds its source of visible light from the glow of the glory of God, that's true, but it's also a place that perfectly reflects and conforms to the glory of God in every way. We see this description in Revelation 21. In Revelation 21, John sees this this new heaven and the new Jerusalem. Listen to this description beginning in verse 22. He said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And listen to this, nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see what's happened here? On the new earth, which will be what heaven really is, God's glory provides the literal light that's needed to see. But in addition to that, everything and everyone in it perfectly conforms to his standard of holiness. Nothing and no one unclean will come into that place. And so in bringing us to glory, God not only brings us to a place... He transforms us so that we literally have the perfect character necessary for us to live in that place. He brings us to glory and He gives us His glory in a sense so that we can have His righteousness and live with Him forever. But here's the even better news. Our glorification, while in its perfect state, remains future for us. We will not be perfect uh, until he brings us to himself. That's true, but also this is true. The process of moving towards glorification is for the here and now. It doesn't just wait to begin until we cross the pearly gates. It, It begins at the moment of salvation. We call it sanctification. The process in which God begins to make us holy. And, and listen to the interesting way that Paul describes this process to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3:18. He says, "But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit." What is he saying? He's saying as we look at and behold and feast upon the glory of Jesus Christ, as it's revealed to us in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is working through that to transform us, one degree of glory to the next, into that image. That's for the here and now. And so this daily process of sanctification functions almost like a kind of down payment, a guarantee that God will complete what he began in us. And one day it will have its perfect completion and we will see him as he is because we will be like him, the scriptures say. It reminds us to live in the present tense in accordance with the fact that we are already now in this present moment, if you're in Christ, a daughter or son of the king and we're to live in a way that reflects his glory by God's grace. Now, I do have to give one clarification It's important to understand that when the Bible speaks of us sharing the glory of God, we have to be very careful. It does not mean to insinuate in any way, shape, or form that we will actually become gods ourselves. That's a false teaching that's out there. It's prevalent in sort of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel movement. That is not what the Bible teaches. Instead, what the Bible teaches is that God will remain God. But he will give us his perfect righteousness in our character, in the area of morality, so that we will be able to have perfect fellowship with him. But the attributes of God that separate him from, other, from, from created beings, he will retain and only he will retain. So, for example, when we get to heaven, we will not suddenly be omniscient and know all things. We will not suddenly be omnipotent and have all power. God and God alone will retain those what we call non-communicable attributes. That means they are unshared. They are God's alone. He is transcendent and he will always be. But he will allow us to share in his glory in the sense of perfect character and morality. And what a gift that will be. But before we move on from this statement to the rest of the verse, we need to make sure we don't miss one other encouraging truth that's encapsulated in this phrase, bringing many sons to glory. Because in this statement is also the concept that Jesus Christ is bringing us to glory and it shows us the fact that he genuinely wants us to be with him. Think about that. He actually really wants us to be with him. After all, this is what he told his disciples again on that night right before he was arrested and ultimately crucified the next day, beginning in John 14 in the upper room. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in me and believe also, or believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, listen to this, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. But if that's not enough, later in John 17, in that same prayer that we read earlier, listen to what he says about this. John 17, beginning in verse 22. The glory which you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that we may be perfected. They may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you have loved me. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. I desire that they, whom you've given me, be with me. Where I am. Notice first of all what he calls these people. He says, Those whom you have given to me. This is why I said earlier that if we're in Christ, we're caught up in something much bigger than just ourselves. We're caught up in this inner Trinitarian agreement in which the Father in eternity past. Chose a people to redeem and to give to his son. The son took on flesh in time and actually accomplished that redemption in his life, death, and resurrection. And the spirit regenerates those who are chosen of God so that they respond to the gospel of the son in repentance and faith and are seal, sealed and kept for the day of glorification. That's why the Son expresses this unthinkable and yet genuine desire. Father, those whom you've given me, I want them to come and be with me. I want them to be with me. Is that not absolutely astonishing? You know yourself. I know myself. And the thought that the perfect Son of God would say, I want him to be with me. It's unbelievable. It should bring an unshakable confidence in the reality of our salvation. What God sets out to accomplish, he accomplishes every time. And if you're in Christ this morning, then he will bring you safely home so that you will be with him. Trust me, if the son desires it, he will see it through. And if the son prays it to the father, the father will see it through and the spirit will see it through as well. It begs the question, how exactly did Jesus secure our passage to glory? Well, that's what the declaration of this text is all about. It's where we begin. Look back at the verse, verse 10, at the very beginning. He says, "...for it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory... To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. To see the actual declaration, the statement that he's making, we have to read the very first line of the verse and then skip to the verb to perfect. Let me read it this way For it was fitting for him to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. The declaration is the fact that. It's perfectly in keeping with the character of God to perfect the Son through the means of suffering. Now, immediately, if you're tracking with me this morning, you should have some questions and some red flags going off in your mind. Because remember who we're talking about here. We're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who is fully God, fully man, who has never been anything less than perfect and never will be anything less than perfect. So what in the world does the author of Hebrews mean when he says to perfect this author of our salvation who is Christ? Well, let me see if I can unpack this for us. First of all, it's important to understand that all words in all languages, including Greek, have what we call semantic range that is a range of meanings depending on the context a word can mean different things and that's true of this word as well the word here that's translated to perfect can also be translated to complete it does it's not a word that inherently implies that something was initially imperfect and then was made perfect it can have the meaning of something being incomplete and then being brought to completion that's a better way of understanding what's being said here it's actually one of the author's favorite ways of re- uh, re- re- referring to Jesus we'll see it in Hebrews in two other places I'll just show those to you Hebrews 5 verses 9 and 10 he says and having been made perfect he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation and then in Hebrews 7:28. He says, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. And to understand this, we have to go back to this concept of redemption and God's eternal redemptive plan that we discussed earlier. Remember, that eternal plan of redemption was declared by God when? Before the foundation of the world. God said, this is what I'm going to do. This is my intention, to save a people through the suffering of my son. Included in that plan, of course, was this substitutionary sacrificial death of Christ. Peter actually acknowledges that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was ordained and foreknown by God before the world began. He says it in his first sermon on Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, after the spirits poured out. Listen to what Peter says in Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see that? What he says is, Ultimately the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross it, it was carried out by sinful men who made real choices for which they are accountable but in and behind that it says ultimately it came to pass because it was ordained and predestined by God to be this way. And when God says he's going to do a thing he does that thing. Numbers 23:19 God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? But as true as that is, the events that God ordains in eternity past aren't fully accomplished until they happen in time. And that's at the heart of the author's meaning here in Hebrews when he talks about this concept of perfecting Christ. Though this plan of redemption was God's eternal plan from eternity past, and it was going to happen, it had to actually happen. It had to play out in human history. And so, through the means of of Jesus Christ coming and taking on full humanity, he was accomplishing and completing, in that sense, perfecting the plan of God. He was bringing it to full completion and accomplishment. And, of course, the, the crown jewel of that completion was his sacrifice on the cross we have an illustration of the same kind of concept when we talk about salvation perhaps you've noticed that the Bible talks about our salvation with three different verb tenses the Bible's very comfortable to say all three of these statements we as Christians have been saved we are being saved and we will be saved so which is it? yes, it's all well, how can that be how can all of those statements be true of us at the same time it's the same kind of concept God ordained that we would be saved. In, in time, we came to hear the gospel, repent of, uh, of our sin, put our faith in Jesus. We are sealed for the day of redemption. But remember, the ultimate goal of salvation is to bring us home, to be with God, fully glorified. That's when our, our salvation will be fully made complete. That's the idea here. It was never in question. It was set in stone because God ordained it, but the Son came and completed it. That's why he says those fateful words on the cross. It is finished. John 19. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit God's people had been elected predestined unto salvation through the, the declaration of God in eternity past but it was there on that cross that it was fully completed and perfected in the sense that the son fulfilled the, wa- the will of the father in perfection and so he says it's finished I've done it So you see, this is not a word that indicates any imperfection in Christ that needed to be perfected. It's instead a declaration that Jesus Christ has perfectly, fully fulfilled the redemptive plan of God. And it is secure. It's perfect. It's complete. But what makes this statement so provocative that the author is afraid that some will struggle to connect it to the perfect character of God is the means by which this was accomplished. And to see this, we we need to skip down to the last two words of the verse. We're going to skip over one phrase, but we'll come back to it. It's the two words, through sufferings. To perfect this one through sufferings. Now, next week for Palm Sunday, I'm going to deal with the suffering of Christ on the cross in detail. So I'm not going to do that this morning, but I do want us to understand the implications of this fact that, that are in the mind of the author. Think about this with me for a moment. What does it imply that it's fitting for God to ordain that his plan of redemption would be accomplished through the suffering of his Son? ...on behalf of sinners. What does that imply? If that's fitting with the character of God, what does it tell us? What are the implications? You remember the two key truths last week. All things are for his glory and all things are by his providence. And so with that in mind, follow my thinking here. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing and he possesses perfect righteousness and perfect goodness then this plan for human history, including the suffering of his son, is the best possible plan of all plans for accomplishing the revelation and exaltation of the glory of God. That has to be true. If God is who this text says he is, and he is, then that must be the case. Because God is all-knowing, Think of this, God knows not only what will happen in this plan that we're living out in human history, this plan of redemption, God knows what the outcome would have been of any infinite number of other plans. He knows them all. And so if he has all power to make everything happen according to his will, and if he's perfectly good, then that means he has brought to pass the best possible plan of all plans to accomplish his glory. The fact that the suffering of Christ is the crown jewel of this redemptive plan that God, God determined for the world it means that there's something about the sacrifice of his son that reveals the glory of God in a unique way. As I said last week, we have in the cross The full range of the perfections of God manifested brilliantly and simultaneously. I hope that you completed your assignment last week that I gave you of thinking through the the many implications, all of the perfections of God that are revealed in the cross. But if you didn't, and even if you did, think with me for a moment on this. How does the suffering of Christ inform your understanding of the following things? How does the suffering of Christ inform your understanding of God's grace? How does it inform your understanding of his love, of his justice, of his holiness, of his wisdom, and of his wrath? You see, the reason that Christ's suffering is so fitting is because God is a redeeming God by nature. He delights ...in the salvation of sinners. He rejoices over the repentance of even one sinner who comes to Christ in faith. It pleases him to rescue his enemies from their own sin and the wrath that they deserve. And these attributes of God are so far outside of our finite understanding... ...that it would not have been enough for God to just tell us these things. To say, okay, if you want to know me, I'll gather around, I'm I'm gracious... I'm loving, I'm faithful, I'm kind, I'm holy. We, we, we would not have been able to fully grasp that. And so he shows us through this perfect plan of the ages that we might see the glories of God displayed in a person. Don't you remember where we began in Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. In the Son, we see a physical manifestation of the wondrous glory of God. And we see the glory of God not only in his life, but in the horrors of his sacrificial death. The suffering of the Son is fitting because it's the only way that we could ever hope to grasp the true depths of the glory of God. It had to be this way. And we will spend eternity rejoicing around the Lamb who was slain and yet lives for us. But in order to explain this mind-boggling declaration, we jumped over one very important phrase. And I want to finish our time by thinking on this last phrase. He says there in verse 10, he names this one who was perfected through suffering the author of their salvation. The author of their salvation was perfected through sufferings. This is a title for Jesus that highlights some crucial realities that should affect our daily lives. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want you to understand the basic idea. This word, the author, means that Jesus is the originator of our salvation, the founder of our salvation, but it also goes beyond that. It can be translated as the pioneer, or the trailblazer of our salvation. If you have the ESV, I believe it says pioneer. It's It's not just that Jesus originated or authored our salvation in the sense that it comes from him, but but the pathway to salvation has been traveled by Christ and therefore it is perfectly secured for his people. He blazed the trail so that we can have confidence that we will be brought along that same trail to glory. He ascended to the Father and sits at the right hand of the Father, so that we can have a sure foundation of hope that we will be brought safely to the Father. Remember Hebrews 1.3, he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This idea that, he did it all. He blazed the trail. He's the pioneer, the originator, the founder of our salvation. And even now, he sits exalted at the right hand of the Father so we can have a sure hope that we will be brought safely home. Maybe you are struggling to see how this connects to your daily life. Let me see if I can help you with that. A few years ago, I watched a documentary that contained secret footage from inside North Korea. And there were many disturbing things about that documentary, but one in particular was the fact that in every building and even private home is a picture of the leader of that country. And the people literally worship him as a divine being. In one scene in particular, there was this group of people gathered in a room very excitedly and expressively giving praise and worship to this picture of their leader. And on the surface, it would seem that their worship was incredibly genuine and heartfelt. There were emotional expressions on their face. there, There was weeping. But then the camera panned to the back of the room, and in the back of that room stood several Military soldiers holding machine guns. And the point being made by the videographer needed no caption or subtitle. The worship of these individuals was driven by fear rather than genuine love. And I fear that many Christians live their daily lives as if the verdict is still out on whether or not God truly loves them. They live daily seeking to obey his commands, but in truth, there's a a, a constant shadow that stands over their heads because they feel as if God is analyzing their every move, just waiting for the slightest mishap in which he will strike them down and pounce in judgment. And when they do this, they live as if the favor of the king depends upon their perfect obedience. But friends, we don't serve a king like the evil dictator of North Korea. We serve the king of kings who has revealed himself through his son. And what we see in the son is that instead of gaining glory by inflicting his people with suffering and threats of violence, our king reveals his glory by willingly suffering in our place. Listen, we don't serve God to earn our salvation and we don't serve God to keep it. We serve God in response to the lavish love and mercy that he's revealed to us in his son. Our obedience is to be lived out in the confidence that we have the way to glory paved securely for us by the son himself. And he will bring us safely home. He's already adopted us as sons and daughters. And he will bring us to be with the father if you've been living the Christian life under a shadow of some false sense that God is just waiting for you to mess up so he can strike you down, then you've missed the true good news of the gospel. The gospel is the message that all of us have sinned against our holy creator God and we deserve his wrath because of our sin. If he gave us justice, we would be eternally damned. But God has also revealed his glory by sending his son to live the perfect life we should have lived and to die willingly as a sacrifice on the cross and to rise again from the grave in victory and inviting all to come in repentance and faith and promising that if you will turn from your sin in repentance and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, you will indeed be saved and in that moment adopted forever as a son and daughter of the king. And every son and daughter of this king has the guarantee of safe passage to glory because the trail stands open and clear by the author of our salvation. As believers, as we close, we need to respond. We need to respond to these wonderful truths in two ways primarily. Number one... Give glory to the author of your salvation. Give glory to the author of your salvation. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ who so graciously and willingly became the author of your salvation through the means of his own violent suffering and death. Indeed, through the means of taking the wrath of God upon himself so that you and I would never have to know it. And if you're tempted to live under some self-imposed weight of judgment, thinking that God's continued favor towards you is dependent upon your own obedience, repent of that and turn your mind again to the true riches of the glory of God revealed in the gospel. Yes, Christians are to pursue obedience, but our obedience is driven by a genuine love and appreciation and affection for Christ. That brings us to our second and final application. Number two, pursue obedience. Conformity to God's glory. Pursue conformity to God's glory. I want to invite us to rejoice in the fact that we don't have to wait until the Lord brings us to glory to begin being conformed into his image. It begins now, as we can pursue him by his grace, understanding that the only way that we will progress in holiness is through the work of the Spirit, but also understanding that he calls us to give our maximum effort towards that endeavor And as we do that, we pursue something of eternal value. Remember that this is a privilege that only Christians have. Unbelievers are not able to progress one inch in holiness towards Christ. But because of the work of the Spirit within us, we can, though not in perfection, but certainly in direction, grow into the character of our Savior. May we run with all our might and fervor towards His glory, compelled not by fear but by overwhelming love and gratitude for a good and gracious Savior. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for what is revealed on the pages of Scripture. The good news of the gospel, it pours out of every page, out of every line, that there is true and lasting salvation in the person of Jesus Christ and that you will bring every one of your children safely home to be with you not because of who we are or how great we are but of because of how great you are. And God, we pray that you would keep us in your love, help us to love and appreciate you more, to pursue you out of genuine love and appreciation for who you are and what you've done for us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.